This is The Guardian. Wünschst du dir, dass dein Lieblingsnachrichtenpodcast nicht mehr durch Werbung unterbrochen wird? Gute Neuigkeiten! Werbefreies Hören bei Amazon Music ist in deiner Prime-Mitgliedschaft enthalten. Geh einfach zu amazon.de slash Nachrichtenpodcasts, um immer auf dem neuesten Stand zu bleiben. Genieße als Prime-Mitglied tausende Akas-Podcasts ohne Werbung. Einige Podcasts enthalten möglicherweise Werbung. I'm David Arunovich. Listen to my new series from Tortoise, Eight Years Hard Labor. It tells the extraordinary story of the double revolution that engulfed the Labour Party after 2015, from centre-left to hard-left and back again. The battles and disasters that accompanied them, and the two men who led those revolutions, Jeremy Corbyn and Keir Starmer. Listen to Eight Years Hard Labour wherever you get your podcasts. A year ago, Labour had a big poll lead over the Tories and a feeling was starting to spread that Rishi Sunak and his government were looking increasingly doomed. Here we are a year later and the story seems to be the same, only even more so. Forget the private jet, he's obviously on a private planet of his own. We've seen big Tory by-election losses and even more Conservative infighting. Do we fight for sovereignty or do we let our party die? Do what you like, nobody cares. And there's been trouble and bad headlines for Rishi Sunak thanks to a big Tory figure who, like the ghost of Bangkok and Macbeth, just won't go away. This is complete nonsense. I mean, complete nonsense. There have also been some very notable departures. I'm not expecting violins here, but I am a human being as well as a politician. So it's time to look back at 2023 and try and make sense of all the chaos and tomfoolery while we look ahead to a calmer, quieter 2024. Ho, ho, ho. I'm John Harris and you're listening to Politics with the UK for The Guardian. Joining me today, I'm very pleased to say, in person, moreover, are The Guardian's political editor, Pippa Krirar, and The Guardian columnist, Gabby Hinsliff. Hello. 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 It's lovely to see you in person. Very seasonal. It's very lovely to be here. you describe the scene? They've actually brought us snacks. Stollen. We're eating stollen. Stollen. Uh, milk tray. Bit of alcohol, gently. Bit, <clears throat> bit of bubbles. More orange juice than champagne, than, uh, than bubbles in it. It's breakfast booze. Breakfast booze. Um, in a minute, we'll look back at some of our big political moments of 2023, but I just want to start with a slightly smug question. You're allowed to be smug at this time of year. I wanted to ask you about the story or piece you have enjoyed writing or working on the most this year, Pippa. Oh, I find that so hard because we've had so many that have brought well, around the demise of Dominic Raab and Gavin Williamson. We've we've uh, we got the leak of Jeremy Hunt's rabbit out the hat on budget or the day before the budget, which was pretty good. But I think watching Boris Johnson at the Privileges Committee and then what happened afterwards and writing that sort of analysis about whether there was any comeback possible for him, which I've done many times over the years, frankly, and always <laughs> so had to he. add always had to had a caveat saying never write off Boris Johnson, never saying never. And this time it finally felt like it might be at the end. Some would say it's um, your doing, at least partly. I'd say it's his doing, actually. But, but let's uh, remind ourselves, you were the journalist who first broke Partygate, which unquestionably is the, the story that put the, the fatal crack in Boris, really. I think it played to his weaknesses, shall we say. You're too humble. Gabby, what was your favourite thing you did? I'm going to lower the tone here and not say anything remotely serious or important because in some ways, although 
I do write about a lot of those things. I don't enjoy it necessarily. I find it very interesting, but I don't enjoy it because you're always anxious about getting it right. The thing I've most enjoyed doing this year was a piece for Guardian Weekend magazine about dogs behaving badly, which was very much, but you know, those kind of people who got puppies in the pandemic when they got those because they looked so cute and they were in lockdown. Those dogs are grown up now. They're three, four years old. And if you own a dog, you'll notice that behavior in the park has declined considerably. And I started writing about this. It's quite Well, I started writing about this thinking this is just a silly story about dogs. And then you realize that actually it's a story about people because dogs live alongside us go through everything that we go through you know they've picked up on the mood more weirdly much more than you think but mainly the reason I enjoyed it is I spent a lot of time hanging out at puppy training classes which was much more fun <laughs> than writing about the war in Gaza or whatever else oh, you could write about do. dogs all the time if that. only dog correspondent I'm up there I'm up I'm up for it if anyone wants to employ me right I'm just going to briefly uh, blow my own trumpet very early this year I wrote a piece about a story which I thought sort of in its own way, crystallised the public mood and the failings of politics and why everyone feels so sort of fatalistic about everything, which was about leisure centre closures, which sounds quite sort of <laughs> tedious, but it's not at all. It's of real importance to people's lives. And I was I was pleasantly surprised by what a reaction it got. It spoke powerfully. There's a sort of symbolism, I think, in people walking every day past a closed swimming pool. It's almost like the keynote image of the country, I would say. Something we all have taken for granted up to this point and then can't anymore yes and there may be more along the way just to cheer everyone up but we'll talk about that in a minute um let's go through a few highlights or lowlights depending on which way you look at it of the year gabby you suggested quite rightly that we talk about boris johnson's appearance in front of the privileges committee and as we've already said what may yet we don't quite know prove to have been his Final downfall. Introduce the story a bit and tell us how he and we got there. I'm with Pippa. I'm pretty sure this is the end of the line, but never we, we live to be disappointed. <laughs> and I wanted to pick, I mean, it is nearly Christmas, so I wanted to pick something that was sort of relatively hopeful or relatively cheering. And I kind of think the end of the line for Boris Johnson was a healthy moment for British democracy, actually. I mean, obviously, you know, it, it, it's a personal end for him, brings to an end uh, someone who's exerted enormous influence over the Conservative Party over the years. But more, I think, from a stepping back a bit as we get to do at the end of the year, this was a moment where it could have gone one of two ways. You know, you you have this sort of prima facie evidence that you have a prime minister who's lied to parliament. And we're in this culture where it seems that anything goes. People can lie and get away with it. And what was important about this moment was that Someone lied, was held to account for it by a cross-party committee, which is important. You know, it wasn't just, you know, someone out to get him. It was his own party as well taking responsibility for that. I think we've got a clip from the committee hearing um, here. Yeah, and the f- among the first voices we hear is Bernard Jenkins, who's a Tory, a brexit Tory to boot, thus proving that um, even people who one might have taken a cynical, sceptical view of really sort of stepped up to the mark and did what was required, really. Exactly. Let's hear, the let's hear the clip. The question is, why did you not take proper advice? Sorry, sorry, sorry. The, 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 the answer is, quite simply, that over the... And I've, tr- I've tried to describe what I felt about these events as they were happening. Nobody raised with me uh, or, or had any concern before I stood up on, 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 on uh, December the 1st about those events. You did not ask. I asked. I did. Sorry, this is complete nonsense. I mean, complete nonsense. I asked the relevant people. They were senior people. They'd been working very hard. They gave, uh, Jack Doyle gave me a clear account of what had happened. The, how the cabinet secretary okay, wasn't there? The I, sorry, you're wrong because I did ask the cabinet secretary. 
So that was the evidence he gave to the committee. We all know what happened next. You know, the committee, he resigned before the committee report was actually published once he'd seen the, the findings because he knew what Just to be clear, say. he was talking there about his failure to seek any advice about what, what we now know as Downing Street parties, basically. And, you know, we've heard that it's become a running theme throughout the year. You know, we've heard his evidence to the COVID inquiry since then on that, that whole period in government. But what I thought, the reason this particular moment felt so important to me, the moment of his resignation, the moment he went and you thought that really is it, there's no coming back from this, is that it could have gone two ways at that point. That was the point where we realised we were not going to go full Trump. Because a lot of Boris supporters were talking about, oh, there'll be a pub, you know, if you get rid of him, there'll be a public outrising. The people will demand their prime minister back. You know, Tory MPs won't put up with this. And then in the end, what happened? He said he was going. Tory MPs, you could feel almost the sigh of relief. You know, let's move on from this great psychodrama. The public, you know, was thrilled to see the back of him. And that's the point at which he realised this isn't going to be a moment where Trump whips up a mob and storms on Capitol Hill. This really is the moment at which we chose sanity. And I think we'll look back on that as not quite the end of an era. I think the era's still got some thrashing around to go. But the point where, you know, we could have gone down a very dark road and chose not to. Of course, we should worry probably a bit less about being Trump and a bit more about being Georgia Maloney. But yeah. But the Conservative Party didn't quite have a great fit of moral principle and stride down that road with everyone else, did it? It is said that this part of the Johnson saga was when Rishi Sunak's fate was sealed as well, because he should have turned up to the Commons when they were voting on the Privileges Committee report, some say, and voted in favour of it, and thereby said, that period of Conservative history is finished, and I am different. And he didn't do that. He took the coward's way out, didn't he? Yeah, and it wasn't just at that moment that he failed to put distance between himself and his predecessors. It was also when he took over from Liz Truss, and when he stood outside Downing Street, there was a, there was a moment there where he could have drawn a line in the sand and, and said look, these people made mistakes and be, maybe even been more explicit about what those mistakes were. And instead, he kind of like arrived in power, almost trying to like erase recent history as though he was a fresh start and he was going to, you know, he wasn't in any way responsible or involved in what had gone before, even though he was, of course, Chancellor under Boris Johnson and, you know, senior figure. And he got a fine. And, well, and he got a fine himself as well. I think he had an opportunity, despite the fact that we were at the tail end of a conservative or feels like a tail, at the tail end of a conservative administration, to have reset things a bit better. And he didn't take that opportunity, primarily because he wasn't there with his own mandate, either a big electoral mandate like Boris Johnson had when he came to power in 2019, or indeed a party mandate um, in the way that Liz trusted when she won the vote of, of party members and beat him in the first contest. So he's constantly nervous. He feels a sense of inadequacy, whatever happens. I think he's probably conscious of, or at that point was conscious of his potential vulnerability, even though there are lots in the Conservative Party, and I think they're right, there would be, who believe there'd be electoral suicide to get rid of yet another Conservative leader before the next election. Incredibly, even in the last couple of weeks, we've heard people talking about putting letters and, th in, and things. It's like a sort of a, sort of a suicide pact for the party. But but he is, I think, and the people around him are conscious that uh, when he came in, that uh, he wasn't quite fragile ground and he needed to be quite careful. Gabby mentioned the public's view of Boris Johnson a moment ago. We are going to hear a bit of a vox pop we did when we went to cover the Uxbridge by-election. I want to talk about this. I like Boris Johnson. I've met him a few times and I really like Boris. Yeah, so. What do you like about him? about him. I mean, I know he's made mistakes, but they all do. My friends, they like him as well. They think he's, you know, he's good. Yeah. I've met him personally a few times. But... I talk to a lot of people who like Boris. This is not the first time I've had this conversation. But I just think he's a complete chancer. He's earned millions of pounds since he left office. He's just bought himself a new house in Oxfordshire. I don't think he gives a monkeys about ordinary people. I really don't. 
No, he probably but doesn't. Like but yeah. <laughs> I don't think any of them care about us, really. No, no I so don't. So they're all rogues, and he's the rogue you like. Yes. That's quite good. Whoever you vote for, the government gets in. <laughs> they're still out there. Those people, in but my they're experience. not very many of them. That's interesting. It's quite easy to find them That's, in the shopping no, centre and Uxbridge that day. You can box pop them. You can box pop them. If you look at polling, if you look at the whole statistical evidence of what people think about Boris Johnson, his popularity has cratered. I think it's also really striking the reception to the Nadine Doris book, which is like you know the last repository of the oh it's all a plot, it's all a conspiracy to bring down Boris Johnson. It was laughed out of court. The reviews were terrible, and the sales haven't been great either, by the sounds of things. That looks like now what it is a fringe view rather than a mainstream view. Might have sold a lot in the Oxbridge area, you never know. Um, <laughs> to those people. Is that it then? Because let's not forget, Boris Johnson is scheduled to start life as a GB News presenter in the new year. I think he's still got his column in the Daily Mail. I wouldn't know, but he has, isn't he? He's still a voice. Yeah, I think that is it for now. And by that, I mean that? That, that there's no chance of him coming back this side of a general election as some of his fans in Westminster. Well, he, well, he can't. Might, well, you know, you hear all these sort of like far-fetched theories about how somebody could be elevated to the Lords and, you know, he could have by-election and a seat's suddenly becoming available as if the Conservative Party would let him do that. You know, Rishi Sunak at all would let him do that. And you also hear these theories about, you know, the dream team with Nigel Farage and possibly they could come back, the right could return. Who's dream? Those people in the shopping centre in Uxbridge, presumably. Um, that would be the but, three people who voted for him, yeah. Well, exactly. But I think that it is uh, it's, it's impossible, this side of an election. And, and not least because, actually, he looks like he's quite enjoying his it life. He's making, massively not he's making nervous, a fortune. He's it? making a fortune. He's travelling the world. He's he's doing his, as he sees it, he's trying to rewrite his legacy by having sort of a big international presence, by being a, a big voice on Ukraine and going around talking about right-wing think tanks and things like that. So I don't think there's any imminent prospect. But the other thing about Boris Johnson is that he is not cut out to be an opposition politician, to be a, a leader of an opposition. It's not grand enough. It's not big enough. He wouldn't, he wouldn't have any power. He's fine well frustrating. Probably mm-hmm. doesn't pay well enough. So I think the prospect of him coming back if the Conservatives lose the last election badly, at that point, I also think is pretty slim. I think what you can't discount is that at some point in the future, five, ten years hence, he sees an opportunity to return. He's done his bit on the international stage. He's made his millions. He's got a bit fed up and feels like his, his life is lacking purpose and he wants to be in the on, the on the world stage again. And he attempts to do what his idol, his hero, Winston Churchill, oh, did please. and become leader again. Now, whether we're past that point or not, I don't think any of us can say. We don't know what's going to happen Look with the rise of populism. Cameron. Would you ever wind? have said that David Cameron would exactly. be back in cabinet? I mean, I think I think the sweet spot for Boris, though, is, is influence, not power. Power is hard work. It brings with it responsibilities. It brings with it things that we would learn from the COVID inquiry if we didn't know before. His sort of manifest inability to actually manage an operation is very clear now. What he wants is just to be talked about, influential, big, important, someone, you know, to be constantly on the verge of people saying, oh, bring him back, is more exciting in some ways than being brought back. Power without responsibility, that sounds Indeed. like. Right, let's move on to um, a run of by-elections that happened over the summer, which definitely sort of crystallised where politics was and where it was headed. There were three major by-elections, there's also been other minor ones. I felt that the, the sense we were getting one by-election after another showed that the end was probably approaching for the government. Um, Uxbridge we've talked about um, in the context of Boris, but obviously the Uxbridge by-elections effects on politics were a bit more profound than that, in the sense that that then gave Sunak a pretext to go full anti-green. Yeah, it was really fascinating. Go blue, go not green. 
to paraphrase David Cameron. There was a local Tory candidate who ran on a ticket of being anti-ULEZ, which is the low emission zone, zone that, yeah. um, that Sadiq Khan had brought in already and been quite successful in central London and was expanding to out of London out of London at the end of August. So it was imminent. And um, that proved very unpopular locally where people were quite reliant on cars to get to hospital appointments, to get to work. And the public transport network is not what it is like in central London, probably much more like what it's like around the rest of the country. Um, it, it's not as bad as everywhere, but, um, but nevertheless, it was not as well connected by public transport as central London. And that, that campaign worked. It was close results, but it nevertheless was a conservative win. And I think that conservatives, as you rightly say, took took sucker from the fact that they felt that there'd been an anti-green vote. And one of the sort of the, the pushes from the right alongside, you know, some of the other culture worry stuff is about net zero. And Sunak and his team were encouraged to take a much harder line to some of the promises that his predecessors have supported. Well, they were looking for an excuse. They were looking for an excuse. But I think that the problem for them is, was, is, will still be, is that they identified a local issue that actually only exists in maybe sort of, you know, half a dozen other seats around the country at maximum. And also, in fact, now that the ULEZ is in, in uh, outer London, whether it will have the same impact a year down the line when there's an election, we don't know. So I think that they've drawn very large conclusions from actually a very specific local issue. And then, you know, going full throttle and watering down some of their big climate commitments, which actually even Boris Johnson stuck by, Theresa May, with the initial 2050 date um for uh, for net zero carbon emissions, Boris Johnson hosting COP and, and sort of being a big promoter of, of some of the big green schemes on boilers and things like that. And Rishi Sunak's argument was basically, we're doing so well, we'll still hit, hit 2050. Um, so all these other things can be pushed back and watered down. And, you know, it just felt like if we were a world leader on climate, as the government had argued, surely you'd want to stay that way. This was the point at which this awful word motorist suddenly re-entered the political vocabulary. <laughs> a word that last had any resonance in about 1957. Um, and obviously, banging on and on about all that stuff, it's been very foregrounded. I think it's cut through. It hasn't helped the Tories at all. I mean, they're still way behind in the polls. It hasn't, because I think it's it's one of those, it's a classic Rishisian thing, which is to not address the actual reason people don't like you or are fed up with you is to pluck something else and say, but I'll do this instead and then you'll be happy. If you're not addressing the actual problem, but the problem is then him. you don't get the, the rewards for him. it. No, the problem is not him. The problem is the state of the country after 13 years. You know, if you can't get a GP appointment, does, does it make you feel any better that, you know, they've slightly watered down the date that electric cars come in? You can drive to the GP no, surgery it at 30 miles you, an hour rather than It's 20. not solved the problem that people have. You know, the green stuff does have to be carefully managed because people do feel, you know, when people are feeling very skint, telling them that they have to get rid of their gas boiler or whatever and pay eight grand for a new one is going to be difficult and you've got to manage that carefully. doesn't mean it won't potentially, some of it won't potentially be difficult for a Labour government in power. Well, doesn't the mean there won't sometimes be protests. The party obviously but... feels nervous about this, doesn't it? I think the language that Labour has used has been really interesting because if you listen to any interview, and there have been many with Ed Miliband, for example, the Shadow Climate Change Secretary, um, over the last year, he always starts with... Um, how Labour policies would help bring down bills, so the economic aspect of it, before he then gets onto the wider argument about climate justice or, you know, um, extreme weather or, you know, the sort of more conventional climate arguments, if you like. Because Labour recognised that for many people, they care really passionately about the environment until such a point it starts to cost them money. And then it's a much more difficult quandary. And in fairness to Adam Miliband, that's right, though. I mean, one of the most ludicrous aspects of the argument against net zero is this idea, which is sort of 
caught on, people believe this, that it was somehow going to hit you in the pocket. Whereas we all know renewable electricity is cheaper than fossil fuel electricity. And one of the things that Labour wants to do with this fund, this green investment fund, is to invest more in renewable energy. It won't be £28 because it takes into account some of the money that the Conservatives have committed since it was first announced on the sort of projects that Labour would also do. And I think there's still questions about how exactly it would be funding, whether it funded, whether it would all be from borrowing or, or whether there would be sort of some room for like, I don't know, like kind of a windfall tax or something like that. So there are questions to be um, answered on it. Rachel Reeves has already pushed back the phasing of the policy. So how, how quickly it comes in. And it wouldn't surprise me, given you see just how much of an attack the Conservatives are, uh, how, how they're running with this as an attack on Labour, whether they might, we might yet see a bit of finessing between now and the election. Sort of underlines the fact that that was a significant event, that by-election, even if, as you say, you know, the reading of the result was a bit self-serving and all that. Nonetheless, something happened. Now, there was another by-election the same day, Selby and Ainsty in Yorkshire. We went there for a field trip. That went Labour. A huge, huge win. They overturned a 20,000 Tory majority. Um, should we have a listen to a couple of the voters we met by way of giving us a flavour of the public mood this year? Podcast about the by-election here on Thursday. I have no idea. Do you live <laughs> here? Can we talk I to you don't understand politics or nothing. Do you live here? here? Yeah, I do. You live here? Yeah. yeah. Are you going to vote? No, I don't know how to. I'm not a clue. What is it about? What is it about? Well, you had a Conservative MP here who um, who's resigned in protest seemingly at the fact that he, he didn't get a seat in the House of Lords and so you have to have a new election now to select a new MP Do I have to vote? No How do I vote? You turn up at a polling station with some ID you should have had a polling card Can I ask you another question? How's life at the minute? I can't swear can I? Yeah, crap, crap, crap. Yeah, really crap? crap It's just crap Go on what things happen day to day? We've got kids as well, haven't we? So it's harder because you can't. I'm working and you just not doing anything with your life, and then you're still left for nothing constantly. I've met so many people who sort of have that kind of conversation with us over the last year. Take out the bit about not voting, and that really, I think says a lot about the public mood, really. It's a real problem for whoever wins the next election, that public faith in politics yeah, and yeah. whether politics can be an answer to their problems is completely undermined. And it's actually one of the reasons why I think Labour's been quite cautious about big promises because they feel, I mean, let alone the fact there isn't any money for big promises, they feel that the public wouldn't believe them anyway because there's been so many big promises from... Brexit, however you interpreted that, levelling up is a big one, yeah. you know, new hospitals in the NHS, I mean, it, it, cutting small boats, you know, all these things, big promises that have been made, apparently about issues that people really care about, and yet they haven't been delivered on. Also, this was the year, I'll just reference what, what the last of those three by-elections, because one happened where I live in Summerton and Froome, which went from the Tories to the Lib Dems, and made exactly the sorts of conversations that you just said we were having those in Froome as well. There were lots and lots of what Theresa May used to call them just about managing. Now, the other part of that story in the last year, which I think has got really, really loud, again, sort of inescapable, is this idea, which is now a cliche, that nothing in Britain works anymore. Everybody says that now. And the right of politics has its version of that, which rather laughably is because we haven't done Brexit properly, right? And the left of politics has its version of that, which is that the sort of post-Thatcher settlement doesn't work anymore. But the evidence is everywhere. You know, it's a year of strikes continuing, let's not forget. And then the other big story, which is not a Westminster story, but I think is really significant, are councils falling over. Mm -hmm. Birmingham City Council is Europe's largest local authority. 
uh, and it effectively announced that it was bankrupt in September. In the wake of bankruptcies in Northampton, Croydon, Thurrock, Woking in Surrey, they go on. Uh, Michael Gove, on the day we record this, has just announced that the government's increasing its money for councils by 6.5%, but lots and lots of credible voices say that it just isn't going to be enough. And these are the, are the bits of the state that are responsible for adult and children's social care, the state of the roads, libraries, leisure centres we talked about earlier. This is where Westminster politics sits in the midst of all this. The trains don't run on time. My local council's falling over. My earnings don't keep pace with inflation. Every day's a struggle. And do you know what it feels like is at the root of a lot of, of, a lot of this is austerity, which was you know five years, six years of the public sector being starved of cash and ending in a situation where it is not robust enough to be able to withstand shocks like the pandemic, for example. Um, and councils, I think, is something like 60% of their budgets has been slashed since 2010. I mean, that that's frontline services. That's the people that, you know, collect your bins and look after kids with special needs and um, are elderly and keep our parks looking nice, our public realm. So very immediate sort of impact of public services. Of course, there's an element with some of those councils you mentioned, and we should say about mismanagement, yeah, financial yeah. mismanagement. It's not just about austerity, but it's hard to get away from the feeling that some of these services have kind of been left to to struggle on and have not had the backing that they need. The interesting thing, Gabby, is in the midst of politics is there's no prospect of any change in the sense that the Labour Party's stick is and has been all year. We're not going to spend any more money either. Yeah, we're now the reform fairy is going to deliver now. Everything's going. The economy is going to grow. Reformed, and I'm not. And I'm not. Well, economy. Well, there's two sort of labour answers. One of which is, you know, we're going to grow the economy, and then we're going to spend the money. Okay, fine. That might take about ten years. Um, and the other sort of answer, particularly on the NHS, particularly you've heard this from West Treating, but I think we're going to start to hear it more broadly, um, is the idea of reform. You know, you take the same amount of money that's spent on the NHS and you spend it better. Now, I am not Never in heard any that way that in any way new. saying. I'm in no way saying that there aren't better ways you could spend the money. I think anyone who has day-to-day contact with the NHS, anyone who's been a patient, anyone who has a member of their family who's a patient will say there are times when the system drives you mad and when you can't work out why it's doing things this way and why is it spending all the money? You know, Why are you sort of constantly having trips in and out of hospital where no one fixes the underlying problem so that you constantly have to keep going back to A&E? You know, all of that stuff. I am not saying that there aren't ways in which you could improve the NHS. And I'm not saying also that technology may not deliver hugely for the NHS. But at the moment, it feels like a holding answer while we kind of try and work out where we get the money from. Objectively, it's quite odd, isn't it? That that every time any of us leave the house and go out into the world, you're acutely aware that this is a country where not enough money is spent on all the important things, right? And I mean, I'm not necessarily decrying the Labour Party for this. It's just an objective point. It's just odd that nobody's got the answer. Yeah, I mean, it's a very different situation. This comparison is often made pre-election with 97. But of course, the big difference there was that the economy was in a much healthier place. Innocent times. There was, and, and not just was in a healthier place, but there was that kind of like cultural optimism, which I just, I mean, it, it, I'll be accused of like talking the country down or something, but I just don't sense it right now. You know, people don't no, feel good about themselves and about where we are and where we're going. So I think, you know, that comparison works up until a point, but not. But there is one thing that's different. One other thing that's importantly different from 97 and is importantly different from a few years ago when we could have had this conversation about austerity in the public realm breaking down is that there was a period where you only felt it if you were kind of 
on the sharp end, you know, people who were using public services yeah, every yeah. day, reliant on public services. Yeah, yeah. Now it's even, and this is a change I first noticed last summer, I think probably when, you know, the wake of, you know, the first sort of holidays after lockdown, when everyone started complaining that you couldn't get a passport because you couldn't get it back in time and you couldn't get, um, Heathrow was having these, you know, sort of six hours delays coming through the airport because they hadn't got any baggage handling stuff. And people who had felt insulated, but well-off people who, let's face it, were mostly voting conservative, and had felt very insulated until now from the way sort of the public world was breaking down, suddenly started to notice that even the things that they wanted to do, they couldn't do. But with also the economic aspect that you talk about, when now it's mortgage holders that are for the first time are really feeling the pinch, having had mortgage rates for so low for so long, they're now super high. And even if they're starting to head down, by the time, you know, every month there's a couple of hundred thousand more people coming off their fixed rate uh, mortgages and are renewing at several percentage points higher than they were before. And, and that's a big, you know, it's a big blow in their pockets. And middle, that's middle income, many of them probably Tory voters, uh, household ho- homeowners um, are feeling for the first time that pinch economically as well. I can remember a time, I had to check myself for this, but it's true, isn't it? Not long ago, sort of in the wake of the Brexit referendum, when a lot of people said that immigration as a big voter concern was fading away. Do you remember that? I'm mm-hmm. not wrong about that, am I? That no, the polling th- reflected that. That was a thing. It still does, weirdly. Mm, well, now look where we are. Two separate issues which the government has tied together, small boats and a broken-looking asylum system, and on the other hand, record high levels of of perfectly legal net migration. Suddenly, there they are in the political foreground, and both those things are feeding a sense that the hard right inside and outside the Conservative Party, see, there's politicians and then there's GB News and the Daily Mail and the Telegraph and so on, they're very, very noisy. And it seems that a lot of the election we're expecting next year might be about immigration. This isn't going to go away, is it? No, definitely not. I mean, not least because Rishi Sunak's trying to push through this controversial Rwanda legislation and there's likely to be more fights over it in January uh, amongst his own party. And then even if it makes it through the Commons, there'll be fights in the House of Lords over it. But I think it's really interesting reflecting on the last year. I mean, one of my first jobs of, of 2023 was to go to um, a university in East London where Rishi Sunak gave this big speech um, in these very trendy surroundings uh, in which he spelt out what his five pledges would be, what his five things that he would do. This was the first lot of five pledges. This was the first lot. The second lot were sort of like under the umbrella of the economy. This is like the main ones, if you like, and they still exist. Five promises. We will halve inflation, grow the economy, reduce debt, cut waiting lists and stop the boats. Those are the people's priorities. They are your government's priorities. And we will either have achieved them or not. The stopping the small boats one was really interesting because it felt like he overpromised. It felt like at the beginning, because he was taking over after such a disastrous period under Liz Truss, and before that sort of a very sort of chaotic period under Boris Johnson, he wanted to make his mark. He wanted to stamp his authority. He wanted to say, I can make big promises and deliver on big things, set himself apart from his predecessors. And so he couldn't sort of go half hearted into it and say, well, I'll, you know, reduce them by a third or I'll, you know, and be a bit more nuanced. It was stopping the boats. And that's what I think the initial problem was, is that he sort of panicked into this overpromise. And then along the way, rather than, and actually quite counter, I think, to his instinctive a way of dealing with problems, which is to kind of sort of say, look, this is complex. This is naughty. We need to maybe take a more nuanced approach to this. It's, it was very counter to that. It was kind of very sort of doubling down, very sort of populist right. Um, and then, but what it did was it highlighted the legal migration issue as well and the fact that that was at record highs. So in people's minds, even though they're quite, as you rightly say, two completely different issues, in people's minds, migration just became this one big mess that the Conservatives weren't, weren't controlling. Um, and he's missed the opportunity to turn things around 
the polling has not changed on this in terms of it hasn't had the impact on on the Conservatives' lead or not not their lead on on you know on, on their position in the polls that he'd hoped it had. And then I stuck with this situation where it is only going to get more controversial, and the election's just around the corner. But his positioning or rhetoric is getting more and more extreme and hair raising. I mean, we've read over the over the weekend. I think you did a piece about this. Did you paper about his rapport with the Italian George Prime Maloney. Minister? Mm. Georgia Maloney, who, who sort of emerges from the super fascist politics, as far as Italy's concerned. There was a headline in the Telegraph over the weekend. Hostile states will drive migrants to UK and destabilise the West, warned Sunak. I mean, this is stuff that somewhat complacently we used to think of as confined to the right wing fringes. Some of it gets a bit BNP, the British National Party-esque, in my opinion. But there it is, partly because a substantial bit of the Tory party is scared shitless of Nigel Farage. I think that's there's two things going on here. One exactly is is fear of reform actually taking you know that's doing quite well. Party, that's what it's called. Well, then. not not Farage's party anymore. Yet, Richard Tice's yet. leader would would, have, would take exception well, with that. You might it, want Nigel's it along to be. for the ride. You might want it to be, and he might end up there. But at the moment, reform, whatever, whoever is led by, it's that repository for old UKIP people. You might think of them. So they're frightened about that taking you know because it may not it won't win seats, but it will do what it always does, which is chip away um, at conservative support and let, let Labour into certain seats worried about that. I think they're also latching on to the one thing that the right-wing press is on their side on, that they know they can talk about sort of relatively kind of, you know, confidently, but which just isn't I mean, you started this by saying that, you know, we used to hear that concern about immigration was falling as if that isn't true anymore. But actually, if you look at the polls, it is, it's still not salient. People are still more worried about cost of living, NHS, other things. The one chunk of the electorate with whom it's resonating is existing committed conservative voters. It's not Labour voters not listening. Well, maybe that's what they're people down to. Is that their electoral strategy, exactly. though, just to, just to hold on to it's your base? Get those people to come out at least. Make sure those people at least vote for you. You're not talking to soft Tory voters at that point. You're not talking to people who used to vote Tory and have gone over to the Labour Party. You are talking to your very committed base that's still energised. The rest of the country isn't energised, and that's why it's not working for them as a as a you know strategy to recover your your poll lead that you lost but the two other, years ago. The other group of voters that it does still resonate with are the so-called red wall voters who voted 2019 for rid of the Conservatives some for the first time. Some of them, yeah. and for Some of them, not all of them, um, and and either stayed away or some of them have switched, but, but some of them are staying at home. So yes, it's about getting them to come out and vote Conservative. But it's also, for, for me, this underlines the problem that Sunak has and the lack of political skill that he has in holding together this electoral coalition that actually Boris Johnson did manage to hold together, you know, the blue heartlands, the traditional heartlands, plus the red Wall. With help from um, Jeremy Corbyn. <laughs> with help from Jeremy Corbyn and Brexit and other things, of course. But it does it, it shows that what Sunak needs to try and do is to keep together the 2019 coalition. That's why we're, I think why we're hearing so much about uh, about immigration, about sort of, you know, sort of touching on the populist right, the stuff with Maloney over the weekend. Um, and yet at the same time, he brings back David Cameron and he tries to sound all grown up and reasonable on the economy. But he's not a skilled politician as Boris Johnson, he doesn't have that instinct. And every single day shows us that that coalition is just falling apart. Right. Let's talk about politics as uh, show business for ugly people. You know, a bit of a human drama here. Yeah. What you say? dare you? <laughs> Should terms, he use the politicians rather than the commentators? characters who've <laughs> departed the stage and a couple who've come back. We've had some sort of big figures bow out of politics this year and a few unexpected ones return. Let's just briefly talk about some of them. This is very, very big. Nicola Sturgeon earlier this year announced that she was stepping down. That was in February when she talked about how draining the job of First Minister was and the lack of privacy. This decision comes from a deeper and longer term assessment. 
I know it might seem sudden, but I have been wrestling with it, albeit with oscillating levels of intensity for some weeks. Essentially, I've been trying to answer two questions. Is carrying on right for me? And more importantly, is me carrying on right for the country, for my party, and for the independence cause I have devoted my life to? The news came, as we all know, as the Police Scotland investigation into the fate of £600,000 in donations to the SNP and the decision by her husband, Pete Morell, the SNP's former chief executive, to lend the party £107,000 were ongoing. Now, leaving all that aside, in political terms, Sturgeon's departure definitely, didn't it, fed the sense of a Labour revival in Scotland, as did the Labour Party winning the Rutherglen Glennon Hamilton West by-election, another one, in October. That's a big, big development, isn't it? the signs of a Labour revival in Scotland. Scotland is always billed as being um, absolutely crucial to a Labour victory. You know, the whole thing about there's no route to there's no route to power for Labour in the UK that doesn't run through Scotland. And while I think that slightly overstates the case because there has historically been some examples of uh, Labour managing that without having a majority in Scotland, it is certainly true that it is much easier if it has, um, if it if it sort of performs well north of the border. There's been complete wipeout for Labour since 2015 in Scotland. They had a one MP until that Rutherglen by-election. And what's really interesting about Rutherglen is that it is wasn't even the safest seat for Labour in Scotland. There's six other safer ones. And it represents a sort of a, a type of seat, if you like, across the central belt, which has got a very similar demographic and very similar voting pattern, that if they can take that, they could potentially take another dozen just like it. So suddenly you go from having about one or two seats north of the border to potentially you know, two dozen, 24, 25 seats. And that could be a game changer. She's left a, a hole, hasn't she, in, in UK politics, let alone Scottish politics, Gabby? Nicola Sturgeon, in the sense that when she was in her pomp, she was seen as a very capable, charismatic, credible political figure from a working class background, right? And was always there. I know sort of Labour voting people in England who got who used to go very weak at the knees when you talked about Nicola Sturgeon. The idea that she somehow represented something different, right? And she's gone and it's fed this sense of sort of a return to business as, as usual. Two technocrats in Westminster, the Tory Labour duopoly, you know, back to normal. I think she performed the act of leadership brilliantly. And if you look back, you know, during the pandemic, there were plenty of times when, especially, you know, during lockdown, you looked across and it seemed like Sturgeon was handling the whole thing so much better than Boris Johnson. You know, it seems like her communication, she's a brilliant communicator. She embodies kind of the office really, really well. If you look at what's actually happened in Scotland, if you look at the state of Scottish education, yeah, you know, or Scottish rating list or whatever, least, you know, yeah. the record of actual delivery no, I mean, as is a politi- very as a political performer. I mean, that was that was almost part of her achievement as well. Leaving, right? leaving aside, you know, the question of the police investigation and all the rest of it, you know, and the kind of, you know, sort of um, scandal around her downfall. So it is, it is a very kind of Richard Rags political story in many ways, you know, the downfall of someone who, in which a lot of hope and faith was invested. But yeah, I mean, I think she does leave a hole, but it's not, it's, it's not quite the hole it would be if she disappeared at the height of her powers. Yeah. You know, she mm-hmm. went on the way out in the same way, Jacinda Ardern was the other big resignation, you know, of the year. And the one which she feel that Sturgeon very much New modeled Zealand herself on, you know, was, was Jacinda Ardern uh, stepping down saying, you know, I've got nothing left in the tank. I've done my bit. I've got no more to give. And everyone was very kind of, Oh, you know, what a shame, but how great to be able to walk away before you get pushed. But actually, 
she was heading for an election in which she was quite likely to get pushed. And you feel very much the same with Sturgeon. You know, and, a- and the other key element of it is, is yes, sort of how the two parties performed uh, both politically and in terms of, you know, in the SNP's case, running uh, public services in Scotland. But the other big bit of the picture is independence and how the Scottish people feel towards that. And there has been, it, with, with her departure, independence or the prospect of independence feels further away than it has done for a very long time. And yeah, that, that helps That's, that's kind of the bigger picture back to normal, isn't it? Yeah. Because for as long as that was there and the question of the survival of the UK was there, we were in a very, very unprecedented political space by historical standards. And the, the difference and that, on the ground when it, it has, and the, because independence feels further away than it has done for some time, reverting, as you say, to the sort of probably the more norm of recent of recent decades, um, it, it, it frees up those SNP voters to say potentially, and this is what Labour will be pushing at, independence isn't isn't the question for now so we're not this vote at this general election is not about whether Scotland's going to be independent or not, or not. it's going to be about a kicking the Tories out and b what's the best way of doing that well it's voting Labour and actually I don't mind Labour that much after all. Mark Drakeford the Welsh First Minister who arguably was quite close to the peak of his powers um, announced that he was on his way out this month that's another big departure from the political stage to some extent he embodied another kind of Labour Party from Keir Starmer. Apart from anything else, he was a big supporter of changing the electoral system. Again, he had a good pandemic, like Sturgeon, arguably. Maybe not so much in Wales if you couldn't get booze in pubs when you were eating and the toy and book department of your supermarket was sellotaped off. They were uh, Wales's approach to the pandemic. But nonetheless, he was a big figure. Um, the Labour Party beyond Westminster having a figurehead, that's now sort of Andy Burnham on his own, really. Do you agree with that? Uh, no, um, I mean Anna Sarwar in Scotland is True. evolving as a as a really sort of significant figure, and and it's not and in terms of the mayors, obviously the Sadiq Khan, Khan in London still. as well. So uh, and and there are lots of other mayors as well, Tracy Babe-Rubin and and others. Um, but um, the what I think is interesting here is is where the power lies, and I've always felt that Labour has not Labour under Keir Starmer has not made the most of the power basis it already has, either electorally or as an example of where Labour is in government, whether it's at you know local government level or, or higher or re, or um, national, to be able to turn around and say, look, you want to know what we do in power? This is what yeah, we do. Yeah, they're quite do. standoffish about their own yeah, people. Yeah, it's got better. It's actually, people say it's got better since Sue Gray joined as Chief of Staff, that she's she sort of understands. I mean, one of her, her last job, in fact, before she left the civil service was um, in the Department for Leveling Up. And also she seems to be somebody that reaches out to people and tries to sort of bring them in and make them feel part of the team. And certainly from the people that I've spoken to around the country that work that, that represent Labour feel that, that there has been a shift in recent months. Right, let's talk about somebody who sort of departed the stage but was still very much around. We talked about the Tories' issues or the profile of their sort of hard-right faction a moment ago. Obviously, that is embodied, personified by Suella Braverman, who up until um, a matter of weeks ago was the Home Secretary. I think she might have some claim to be in the political character of the year in her own awful way, in terms of the fact that regularly this year she seemed completely inescapable. Uncontrolled immigration, inadequate integration and a misguided dogma of multiculturalism have proven a toxic combination for Europe over the last few decades. Let's not forget, um, she was sacked as Home Secretary when she was accused, quite rightly in my opinion, of stoking tension ahead of protests against Israeli actions in Gaza in London. And she's not gone away. She obviously is readying herself for next year, right? And she's the absolute epitome of everything we talked about. I'm sorry, every fibre of my being revolts against the idea of making Suella Braverman political but, but character of the year, even, even in a negative sense. I do get to choose because this you is our podcast. You know what I mean, but you know what I but mean, no. don't you? 
No, I don't do know what you mean, but I actually wouldn't make I wouldn't um put Suella in that position. I would actually and again, I'm not 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 voluntarily. Um I would say yet again, it was Nigel Farage who takes that particular biscuit. It has been Did you watch him in the jungle? That's I, why she's saying that. It has been <laughs> Nigel's year. Boycotted it. <laughs> it has been Nigel's year more than he's been his. She represents of course she represents that faction of conservatism. She embodies that debate. She represents that kind of She also a debate rep- on her part. She, she, also, she knows what she thinks. She also represents that kind of element of someone who uh, let's face it is put in a position that they are incapable of occupying competently. Um and re- but represents this kind of fantasy politics where if you just say it um, in a speech, it happens and you don't have to, you know, pay any attention to how it actually works out in the real world or run your own department. But he invented that. He also has driven yet again, he's back to doing what he's always done, which is forcing the Conservative Party to do thing to to enact his agenda, even though he can't actually get elected to enact well, his agenda. Hold on, what's your point here that, that Farrar's ultimately is pulling the strings as far he's as not, I don't I don't mean that he's like somehow, you know, no, but it's his her. influence but, you that know, pulls people like... But she wants to go in this direction. I That's think who she is. She she's does want to go in this authentic. direction. She does want to go in this direction. I'm not saying she doesn't want to. I'm saying she's a less important figure. We're not going to be talking about Suella Braverman in 10 years' time. What if she in becomes the, the next leader? we have been well, talking what, about ah. Nigel Farage for however long. What if she becomes the next leader of the Conservative Party? I'm not going to rule that out. Are you? I wouldn't rule it out if they lose the next election because the, the MPs choose two candidates and the one on the right... That's thus far always been the most popular with the members who decide to vote ultimately. So if she becomes the candidate of the right, although there are other, are other contenders to that crown, such as Kemi Badenoch, um, then, then yeah, she could be leader of the opposition. And I think that's what she's aiming for. But I mean, Gabby's right in that you think back to 2010, 2011, who was pushing David Cameron most vociferously towards holding a referendum on Brexit? It was Nigel Farage. You think back to 2018, 19, who was causing the most problems for Theresa May than Boris Johnson on the Brexit deal? It was Nigel Farage. And then who at the beginning of this year was standing on the White Cliffs of Dover putting out videos which watched by millions of people on his YouTube channel about small boats? It was Nigel Farage. It almost feels like they're all like running to catch up with him. It is his world and we're all just living in it, basically. Oh, is no, the no, that's, that's too depressing. It's meant to be <laughs> on the Christmas. Right. <laughs> it's meant to be Christmas. Come on, it can't be that bad. Uh, let's cheer ourselves up by talking uh, momentarily about Nadine Doris. You're laughing already. This was my second contender for favourite moment of the year. Was interviewing her actually. Did you interview her? Yes. Oh, it's brilliant. Yes, I did. In our newspaper that you religiously read, I did. So we just explain what she's doing in the running order first of all. Um, she vacated her seat in Parliament. Was that before or after you interviewed her on the 29th of August? <laughs> it wasn't my fault. <laughs> no, but did you interview her after she vacated her seat? Um, she'd not spoken in the House of Commons since June 2022, or worked on a select committee. Um, there then was a by-election in her seat of Mid Bedfordshire, which the Labour Party won. Um, and then she brought out a book called The Plot. Was that why you interviewed her? That it? was why I interviewed him. Alleging, quote, a damning trail of treachery and deceit by an obsessive pursuit of power. This doesn't even make grammatical sense. Which threatens to topple the very fabric of our democracy. Can you topple a fabric? I don't know. But she blames this shady clique that she terms the movement and someone who she calls Dr. No who she says works for Rishi Sunak and is rumoured to have once put the frighteners on someone by nailing to a door the dead pet rabbit of his ex-girlfriend's brother. If you can follow that, God help you. But nonetheless, um, there is a dead rabbit on a door and someone called Dr. No. Did you ask her about all of this? Of course I did. And um, a, a lot of the answers had to be taken out by the lawyer. Um, so it was a legally contentious interview, it's fair to say. I mean, I have to confess, um, on a personal level, I rather like Nadine Doris. She's good fun. Um, and she is weirdly, <laughs> weirdly like just on the, I disagree with her about pretty much 
everything on the planet. And yet she's one of those people that you can disagree with about pretty much everyone on the planet without her taking huge offense at it. 99 times out of 100, it's all mad. And then then sort of one time she absolutely nails something. Go on. You know, and it's that kind of, it, well, the famous one is is that posh line boys. we all still posh use boys. about Posh Boys and the Price of Milk. You know, she's a good judge of character sometimes. And then sometimes she's way off beam completely. Unfortunately, I think that not only are Cameron Osborne two posh boys who don't know the price of milk, but they're two arrogant posh boys who show no remorse, no contrition and no passion to want to understand the lives of others. And that is their real crime. I am fascinated by politicians who are unpredictable. She is completely and utterly I think she's unpredictable even to herself. Yes, uh, but she look. She was she was sort of the self-anointed um, voice of Boris Johnson and was his, his most vociferous and public and vocal supporter right from the off. I think it almost felt like she needed to be his defender when she was in his cabinet and then beyond throughout the many many months of his downfall, and was amongst those who were sort of like leading the attack, you know, involved in the attacks on the Privileges Committee, suggesting that it was all biased. And any time that there's any story, any revelation now, she always sort of tweets about it and and sort of suggests that we were all part, we the journalists as well, were part of some some cabal that that you know was all intent on on bringing down her man, which is just bonkers, frankly, because the, the prospect of you know me, for example, working in tandem with with sort of some of these senior All Tories. All of it makes no logical scale. sense whatsoever. And the minute you kind of pull at one thread, you know, she, she sort of changed in the interview from saying that everything was about you know, wanting fur. to install Kemi Badenoch and that's what the movement is all about and the next minute she's saying that actually the point is to bring back George Osborne and the next minute it's something else and none of it mate, has any coherent set logic sort of whatsoever. The whole thing is kind of frankly mad but in a way that's, that's, that's what the year has felt like has been an incoherent sort of <laughs> rabble of kind of Talking things of which, that make no sense whatsoever. Talking of which, last name on my list. This is very, very important. Who would have put money on the return of David Cameron, known these days as Baron Cameron of Chipping Norton? That's a bit provocative, isn't it? Do you remember the Chipping Norton set? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, there, he was a posh boy that didn't know the price of milk if ever there was one. I laughed like a drain when that was announced. I just thought, right, we're definitely through the looking glass now. I don't know whether you know this, but when everything, anything awful happens in Tory politics on Twitter, I have this habit of putting up a picture of David Cameron shit, sitting in his shitting, sitting in his, <laughs> sitting in his shepherd's hut, as if to say this is where it all started to go wrong, which is what I believe. He's the one who called the Brexit referendum and so on. And yet he's back. Yeah, apparently he um, he felt his life was lacking purpose and he wanted to, to do more than just, you know, swan around lobbying the government on behalf of uh, corporations. Those shepherd's huts get very cold in winter. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> he wanted to move but out. He wanted to rewrite his legacy, didn't he? I mean, that's what that's my take. You know, he... he uh, isn't um, that going swimmingly? Well, We've all going got brilliantly. such a drastically different opinion of the Osborne Cameron Clegg years it's since just, he returned to the cabinet. It is so interesting, though, because he obviously he left under a very dark cloud, um, having... Sort of overseen a policy which he didn't, which he actually campaigned against, and has caused all sorts of turmoil. Uh, even even its supporters are, are not happy with it. And so this felt feels to me like he was lacking purpose. He wanted an opportunity to rewrite history, and he was probably bored as well. To be fair, Tim, he's doing a little bit more than than swanning. I think it's been interesting watching the government's position on Gaza evolve. That's true. Kind I was of quite smoothly and quite seamlessly over the last few weeks in step with the Americans from from basically Israel can do whatever like it's got a right to defend itself through to now we're calling I can't remember what it is sustainable ceasefire yes. we're calling for now which is not an immediate ceasefire not a humanitarian pause even though it sounds very like the humanity it's, it's the same thing Keir Starmer was essentially arguing for do you not think that's an example of the political class at their absolute worst though? no 
That there were calls for a ceasefire when the death toll was at ten or fifteen thousand, and they were oh, you can't have a ceasefire, absolutely no way. And then we reach a completely arbitrary tipping point, which is just that the horror finally occurs to but them, still and not, suddenly it's ceasefire, ceasefire. They're ceasefire. still not calling for a ceasefire. The, the the difference they say is that a sustainable ceasefire is exactly that: is that it can't just be a pause in the fighting. It has it has to be realistic, and a ceasefire doesn't come about. They argue unless both sides are on board. We're not so cynical as to say no, that's not what the government wants. I think they're just trying to find a way realistically of getting there given all the sort of really complex geopolitics that exist around the US relationship with Israel and the Arab states and I actually think I, I, I agree with Gabby on this I was being unfair to him I do think that Cameron is handling this more deftly than some have done Are you surprised that there isn't more of a sort of upsurge of public feeling about the horrors of what's going on in Gaza notwithstanding the horrors of October the 7th in any way but I read this week that about 85% of the people of Gaza are not living in their homes. Do you think there's not been a sort of a public... I was going to say, I'm surprised that's necessarily on the scale that I thought. I think think it's the first thing that anyone talks about. Some of those things very often happen, and there's a huge wave of of public revulsion that puts politicians under pressure, and maybe it's been a bit... I think it's very rare for foreign policy. Very rare for foreign foreign policy. It's also an example. foreign policy where we have no particular locus. I mean, even suppose we were to move to a policy of, as a government, as Macron has, you know, of, of moving to a policy of, of de- saying we support an immediate ceasefire. Would that make it happen? No. So I think you get... No, but it's important that no, politicians no, no, no. display but that they have get, a, moral, a clear moral it sense is, in the face of It is, but you were saying, why haven't people, you know, kind of risen up against government more? And I agree with Pippa. I think there is a huge upswell of public feeling about it. But it's very hard to know. It's not like you're asking for a change in our government's policy that would make something happen. And that's when you normally see you know, real pressure on politicians is when they could do something and they aren't doing it. The thing I do notice actually is that it's very rare now to encounter anyone under the twenty five under the age of twenty five who's voting Labour, not Green. You know, I think there is a huge um particularly for younger voters, there's been this existing shift shift towards the Green Party. And I think Gaza is one of those things that's really pushed it that way. That's interesting. And I don't know whether that will, at the at the election, obviously general election, those people will have a really difficult choice to make in lots of seats because in so many seats, if they vote Green, you know, they, they, they'll risk the, the Tory MP hanging onto the seat. But that doesn't mean that that's not where your heart is, essentially. That's good. That's a story worth watching next year. Right, let's have a break and have some stolen and um, morning booze and then we will return uh, when we're going to talk about what's going to happen next year with the aid of some questions sent in by listeners. Wünschst du dir, dass dein Lieblingsnachrichtenpodcast nicht mehr durch Werbung unterbrochen wird? Gute Neuigkeiten! Werbefreies Hören bei Amazon Music ist in deiner Prime-Mitgliedschaft enthalten. Gehe einfach zu amazon.de/nachrichtenpodcasts, um immer auf dem neuesten Stand zu bleiben. Genieße als Prime-Mitglied tausende Acast-Podcasts ohne Werbung. Einige Podcasts enthalten möglicherweise Werbung. I'm David Aronovich. Listen to my new series from Tortoise: Eight Years Hard Labor. It tells the extraordinary story of the double revolution that engulfed the Labour Party after 2015 from centre-left to hard-left and back again. The battles and disasters that accompanied them and the two men who led those revolutions, Jeremy Corbyn and Keir Starmer. Listen to Eight Years Hard Labour wherever you get your podcasts.
Welcome back. Pippa Krira and Gabby Hinsliff are still here, as am I, and we're going to look ahead to the next year with the aid of questions for us that were sent in thanks to a Twitter appeal and got through, despite the great sea of right-wing disinformation and muskery that got in the way. So let's start with the first one from Andrew Greystone. It's a good question, this. How much warning will we get of a general election? Is there any political advantage for Rishi Sunak in giving minimum notice or in having a longer, short campaign, whatever that means. It's a good question, though, isn't it? It is. And we're all desperately trying to read the runes and work out what, what is signalling a general election or what might not be. So, for example, in the autumn statement, Jeremy Hunt announced there was going to be a national insurance cut, but it was going to come in from January. So we all got very excited about the prospect of that, meaning that there might be a spring election rather than an autumn one, as we'd all previously been been assuming May the second, a lot, of, or at least one Tory has told me. Well, it could be May the second. It could be May the. It could be May the ninth. It could be June the second. It could but be June question, the sixteenth. The question about be, the shortness of the campaign because you, you can go long, yeah. can't you? Yeah, I mean, I think realistically, I mean, general election campaigns, Gabby, are generally about six to eight weeks thereabouts. Um, I think there's not much benefit to them going longer, given we all feel that we're in an election campaign already anyway i suspect that they will try and keep it short and sharp inevitably we'll pick a moment that they think they've got the best opportunity to try and close that gap with labor i think if you've got a disunited party the last thing you want is a long campaign during which more things can go wrong i think you want to try and it's like it's like a family christmas where you only really want people to come for like christmas day and boxing day because after that everyone's going to start arguing so you just kind of try and condense it into as little time as possible and and leaving aside the question of the length of the campaign the time of the election itself any chance of january 25 I, I do think I think that looks desperate if they go that long. I think I, I think it's well, still looking pretty desperate already. I think the, the favourite I think is still probably the autumn because they will be hoping that something comes along that changes God, events. Um, so I'd say October October next year. But that's not to say that the sort of chaos we've seen in the last couple of weeks, if that continues, then Sunak might just think, I've "Got to cut my losses and go early." It's worth saying we've got an infantile system of government, haven't we? I know we had a fixed-term Parliament's Act. Act. They got rid of it, didn't they? For a bit. And we're now back to this ludicrous system whereby, you know, one team in the football game decides when full-time is. I mean, it's ludicrous. Well, you know, there are arguments for and against, which I'm sure have been rehearsed on on, in many other podcasts. ludicrous that none of us know. We're meant to be a developed Western democracy with a halfway functioning like, economy. I like the element of random know. unpredictability yeah, it throws into all of our years. You don't know when you can book holiday as a reporter. <laughs> you don't know. It's not as bad. The year that I really wanted to know was the year that I was pregnant. And I was just thinking, look, am I either going to be on maternity leave when this happens or not? Could you just tell me? But no. I have a holiday booked at the end of May and I'm going on that no matter what. No, so am I. Should I admit that? I'm not sure I've told the bosses May that half yet, term. You've got that booked May as well, half term. Yeah. So if there's a June election, the holiday gets cancelled. If there's a May, early May election, I reckon that having done sort of the gruelling campaign trail in the first few weeks of a new government, I'll be so exhausted they wouldn't want me anywhere near this place there's anyway. There's a late May election. I'm podcasting from Hadrian's Wall, let me tell you. Jeff Hackney, presumably Hackney is not his real name. He says, oh, we're back to the inescapable ubiquitous Nigel Farage See, this again. is my case for making him. Give over. I'm wondering whether Farage will stand in the Blackpool South by-election. There's going to be a by-election in Blackpool South imminently uh, and throw a spanner in the works of the next general election. Atlee the Commons Cat, again, possibly not their real name. <laughs> Might be Wilson the Commons Cat. Will reform win the Blackpool South by-election? So all eyes on Blackpool South, Brexit-y, quite red wall 
I'm saying no and no to both those things. I mean, I think the, so the Labour, thing is... The Labour Party, presumably, will be the favourite to win the Blackpool South by election. Win that seat back. And I think the thing is with Farage, I mean, he's lost so many times now. He has stood he's for lost time over and over and over again. It was seven, unless it seven. depends if you count I'm a celebrity. I think it was seven. I seven, definitely count that. Seven by-elections and count, I'm counting I'm a celebrity. So, you know, it's fairly obvious by now that it's quite hard for him to get elected. And if there is, you know, guess who's fueling the talk of him being offered a peerage harder than anyone else? You know, that's the easy way in, isn't it? You get in without doing any of the hard work of winning an actual election. I'm sure that'd be preferable. Jesus, that's just his, his whole career, really, isn't it? It's sort of will he, won't he, no he won't, and and, <laughs> and um, the no he won't position has the as the ideal ratio of sort of effort to result, doesn't it? Well, I think I mean he has been a significant political figure over the last couple of decades. One of the most significant. He's very he's very adept at how to grab attention. But he doesn't want to be an MP sorting out Mrs. Miggins' bin deliveries. I think probably not anymore. Um, I mean, I don't think. Also, if if he were to lose again, which he almost inevitably would, then you know it damages the brand, doesn't yeah. it? And he's he's kind of got a track record, as we've discussed, of achieving his ends by campaigning. Really, he's more of a campaigner than a politician. He puts on influence in that way. He uses the media to do that as well. So I'd be very surprised if he were to stand. And if he were to stand, I'd be very surprised if he won. My favourite bit of political journalism of the year was a Marina Hyde piece about, how, among other things, about how Farage has absolutely no hinterland. He has no interest in anything other than politics and himself. And she once innocently asked him, what's your favourite film? And this look of complete panic came over his face and he didn't have an answer. Are we not counting smoking as a hinterland then? Smoking, the whole smoking does That's not Travel, Australia, yeah. Australian jungle. Gave up smoking drinking, drinking, I think, when he was in the jungle, didn't he? Well, you have to because there's no drink. Well, I saw so one of my headphones says he carried on he smoking. He had red wine. He had got, had red wine for his kind of like final meal. Red wine. Right, I, saw him, I saw him at a thing the other night though. I saw him at a thing the other night though and he's definitely taken back up the drinking. And the fags? I didn't see him smoking. We were inside. Um, Norfolk Eagle, again, possibly not their real name, says, does the public actually care? It's a question we ask ourselves every week. And then there's a supplementary question. It's not care about what? Everything. Will people bother to vote when Labour is not offering anything different? We spoke about this a moment ago. It's not going to be a very clearly defined election, as we know, in the sense that you're not going to get big policy offers from either side. And we are in the midst of this sense of public disconnection from politics writ large. So what do we think is going to happen to turnout and the level of public buy-in, right? So I think that there's a couple of factors that will be at play that will encourage people to vote. And one of them, and probably possibly at the moment feels like the biggest is the is the stop Tory vote, the get the Tories out vote. So it's a vote against something rather, you know, it's, it's a government losing an election rather than an opposition winning. And I think that that is very powerful for people that uh, feel motivated, you know, want feel that the current setup isn't working for their lives to try and change things. The other bit of it, so that's like the push factor. The other bit is the pool factor and whether Labour is an attractive enough proposition to encourage them to come and vote out of hope that their life could be better. And we've still got a lot to hear from Labour on this. They want to try and answer the question, if not them, the Tories, why us between now and the general election? And they do have some big policies. You know, they've got their green their green investment fund. Just about still. Um, just about still. Um, they, you know, they've made some some quite significant policy announcements on everything from from the NHS to to education to childcare, but they don't seem to communicate them quite as He's strongly as they should. The proverbial welly is He's here's, not. A, here's a good point of comparison, and we all know 1997 was different, and there was that optimism in the optimism in the air and so on. But Tony Blair, for a period, used to talk about the moral condition of the country. He was pretty good at that. He used to say, you know, I want to live in a country where my sick child 
child is your sick child. We don't pass by on the other side. This is the patriotism of a nation. You know, he had a story about the essential moral state of the country. Now, everybody knows that the country morally is in a pretty odd place. You know, I stepped over rough sleepers on my way here. I don't know about you. The signs are everywhere. And Starmer still says when he's asked, what's your number one priority? He says growth and productivity. He's still a cold fish in that sense, isn't he? And I don't think that's going to change. You know, Tony Blair was very good at slipping into slightly family vicar mode, you know, and, and, and talking unembarrassedly about sort of the moral condition of the nation. I don't think Starmer can do that. I don't think he particularly does the sort of emotional register that allows you to connect individually with people. I think there is what there is now, and we have to accept that, which is a chance to get rid of the current government, which, as Pippa says, it's not a small thing, let's face it, um, a sort of gradual hope of improvement, shall we say, just um, sketched out by the policies. And I think, is that when you say, uh, the, sorry, when not when you say, when Norfolk Eagle says, um, will people bother to vote when Labour's not offering anything different? First of all, I take issue with the fact that it's... Um, something it's not offering anything different but beyond that i'd say <laughs> yes they have to because this is you know this is the first sort of realistic i would say chance in i don't know how many years to install a labor government and the biggest fear is not that people are thinking labor doesn't offer anything different i think is probably the biggest hurdle to get over is people thinking no government does anything different this mm -hmm. party says this this party says that but none of them actually deliver it and therefore, government itself does not deliver, no matter who. So that's as good it. as it gets. Really. That's a much Vote for us; we're not as mad as them. But you got to. I mean, I wish we were in a world where Libra felt able to offer a bit of hope and inspiration to people as well, though, because they need to feel that their lives are going to get better. And also, even in pure numerical terms, it could potentially be the difference between having a majority enough, big enough, to be able to do anything that you want to in that first term. And let's face it: if they want to be able to succeed they need to be able to crack on immediately and secondly the prospect of winning a second term and that might seem you know like, like I'm looking far too far ahead but realistically given the state of the country given the state of the economy and the economic backdrop that they would inherit they're going to need more than one term to try and turn things around. Now, there is another question sort of in this area which I think is, is worth asking Pip Sanders asks, are we ever going to get back to politics as it ought to be, as they think it ought to be, evidently? Integrity, truthful, serving the public might be a start. Or are we doomed to Trumpism in the UK and globally? Now, we've had a sort of pause in Trumpism in the UK in the sense that both parties are now led by sort of self-style technocrats who have tried to some extent, this is a bit generous to Sunak, but to move away from Boris Johnson politics, which was understood as the UK sort of version of Trumpism. But it might still be a danger, particularly actually given what might happen to the Tory party after the election. That's not gone away. Do we think it's it's a realistic prospect to think about the return of ideas like public service and truth and integrity? I think a lot of the shift has already happened with the departure of Boris Johnson. I think we reached a real, a really dark point, actually, when it, when it came to sort of integrity in our politics, because he was the one that he was the face of British politics. And with his departure and, and sort of the departure of sort of the core people around him, that has already changed. And increasingly, that sort of populism bubbling up on the right of the party is just that. It's on the right of the Conservative Party. It's not reflected across the country at large. And I, you know, I hope that, that I know politicians get a really bad name and frankly, some of them really deserve it. But there are lots of politicians that do great public good, you know, campaigners, individual backbench MPs, people like Diana Johnson and the effect of blood scandal, people like Carolyn Harris and and um, HRT and gambling. She's also campaigned on people like Jess Phillips and domestic violence. You know, these people really make a difference. And I hope that even if 
people feel a lack of faith with the politicians at the top, they can see that there are actually people there that are there for the right reasons and that we see more of that rather than less of that in the in the months ahead. Completely agree with that. I will just pick up on the second um, half of Pip's question, which is, are we doomed to Trumpism in the UK and globally? I think we've turned our back on Trumpism here, um, whether or not, obviously, we're not the only country facing elections next year, and whether or not the US decides to return to Trumpism. Yes. You know, that's still an open question, <laughs> yes. and what impact that's going to have on British politics, if that is the case. You know, a Labour government, an incoming Labour government might have to deal with a Trump America, and that is that opens up a whole new can of worms. That's the most sobering thought of all, I think, looking ahead to the New Year. And the rest of Europe has to be prepared to deal with that. And we have to think about things like, you know, what happens to Ukraine, for example, with a Republican government that isn't prepared to um, give them any more money. You know, is the US, is the Europe prepared to take on its own defence? Nowhere near ready for that. You know, what does that mean for an incoming Labour government in terms of what it might have to spend on defence, how it might, you know, all of those things, these are huge, huge questions potentially. Yeah, we might be faced where you get, some people anyway, get a, a lift from the exit of the Tories say in May and then you get to November and the world is suddenly tilted off its axis once again I mean that may well be the reality of next year I'm sorry to so miserable. Happy Christmas everyone Happy Christmas everyone <laughs> Fascism's on its way um, but it really is anyway um, we're going to end on a slightly lighter note um, Dan Jennings is the host of the soon to end Paul Weller fan podcast an amazing story a man who started a podcast dedicated to Paul Weller quite a long time ago and said his aim was to interview lots and lots of people who knew or knew of Paul Weller and eventually maybe get to Paul Weller himself and just as Christmas arrives he's finally interviewing Paul Weller and I think fan- John's jealous isn't he fan- I've been a guest on his podcast oh um, his, his podcast is reaching its end, but he is a fan of this podcast by the sound of it because he sent in a question. He said, which of Paul Weller's lyrics, he was asking me this question, do you think most apply to 2024? Um, it's interesting that one of the councils that's gone bankrupt is Woking in Surrey, which is uh, Paul Weller's hometown. I thought the most appropriate lyric of 2024 from Paul Weller's canon was Town Called Malice. It fits whenever Britain goes wrong. It always has a big resonance. Struggle after struggle. Year after year, the atmosphere is a fine blend of ice. I'm almost stone cold dead in a town called Mal. It's not really cheery, but that's a bit what it's like out there. Season's <laughs> greetings to you too. Ho, ho, ho. Has anyone <laughs> got a slightly more uplifting one? Council one? Yeah, go on. Well, I'd go with walls come tumbling that's down good. then. Cause it's a general election year and that's a nice cheery one. And it is, you know, it could all be coming Governments tumbling crack down. and systems Governments fall because unity is powerful. Lights go out, walls come tumbling down. Oh, I'd like to. I to- I toyed with the Sex Pistols anarchy in the UK, given the last year we've had. But I have to be realistic. My house is packed with children that love a bit of pop and a, a, a bit of sort of. Well, in fact, Taylor Swift is very popular in my house. So uh, I thought my song would be Taylor Swift's "Shake It Off." I always think of you whenever I hear it, Pippa. Player's gonna play, 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 and the haters gonna hate, 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 hate. Baby, I'm just gonna shake, shake, shake. I shake it off. On that note, <laughs> happy Christmas, everyone listening. Thank you for joining us, Pippa and Gabby. Thanks for having us. Happy Thank Christmas. You. And a happy new year. I hope you manage to have a great Christmas break and new year. We'll be back then this year for the Guardian and Observer's annual charity appeal. We're asking for your support to help refugees and asylum seekers rebuild their lives in safety. We're partnering with the Refugee Council, Refugees at Home and NACOM to provide asylum seekers and refugees with practical support, vital accommodation and a safety net against homelessness and destitution. If you can, please donate now at theguardian.com forward slash donate. This end of year episode, that's it folks for now, was produced by Frankie Toby. The music is by Axel Cacoutier and the executive producers are Maz Ebtahaj and Nicole Jackson. 
This is The Guardian. Wünschst du dir, dass dein Lieblingsnachrichtenpodcast nicht mehr durch Werbung unterbrochen wird? Gute Neuigkeiten! Werbefreies Hören bei Amazon Music ist in deiner Prime-Mitgliedschaft enthalten. Geh einfach zu amazon.de slash Nachrichtenpodcasts, um immer auf dem neuesten Stand zu bleiben. Genieße als Prime-Mitglied tausende Akas-Podcasts ohne Werbung. Einige Podcasts enthalten möglicherweise Werbung. I'm David Aronovich. Listen to my new series from Tortoise, Eight Years Hard Labor. It tells the extraordinary story of the double revolution that engulfed the Labour Party after 2015, from centre-left to hard-left and back again. The battles and disasters that accompanied them and the two men who led those revolutions, Jeremy Corbyn and Keir Starmer. Listen to Eight Years Hard Labour wherever you get your podcasts.